Let's pray. May the word of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There was drama on this week's episode of The Bachelor. If you're not watching this season, Matt James is The Bachelor, and he is a tall drink of water. <laughs> the drama is that the producers had a surprise this week. They added five more women. And now the 20 or so original women who have been there for three weeks fighting for their roses from Matt, well, they've closed ranks and turned mean. They don't like these new women. These new women are threats to their collective man. <laughs> they start gossiping about the new women and it's bad gossip. With a few notable exceptions, these women, normally decent, fun, happy women, turn all side-eye and superior. Why do human beings do this? Why do we close ranks and turn aggressive? We might not be contestants competing for a man on The Bachelor, but oh, do we ever do this. The Gospel of Luke today is offering up a scene of this kind of dynamic. It's a little hard to see at first, but there is something deeper going on in this passage than simply the legalism of the Pharisees versus the liberality of Jesus. It's about who gets counted on the inside of the group and whose behavior puts them on the outside of the group. Joel Green, who is a professor of New Testament down at Fuller, says in his commentary on, the on this passage that one can refer to the keeping of the Sabbath as a characteristic marker of Jewish identity. What is more, the role of the Sabbath, uh, the role of Sabbath observance for the maintenance of group boundaries and as an emblem of group solidarity is evident. For in both accounts, a particular interpretation of the Sabbath regulation against work is simply assumed, never argued. What Green is saying is that the Sabbath this commandment Jesus and the Pharisees are arguing about, the Sabbath isn't just ethical, it's also social. It's a behavior, a practice that forms a community. Keeping the Sabbath was a marker of Jewish identity. It was part of what marked you as a Jew instead of a Roman or an Elamite or a Mede. The identity and community forming practice of Sabbath reminds me of Malcolm X's conversion to Islam. In his, the, autobi in his, the, uh, <laughs> the autobiography of Malcolm X, Malcolm talks about his time in prison where he earned the nickname Satan because he was so anti-religious. 
One day, though, his brother Reginald wrote him and said, Malcolm, don't eat any more pork and don't smoke any more cigarettes. I'll show you how to get out of prison. Well, three or four days later, after he got that letter, pork was served. And Malcolm writes, when the meat platter was passed to me, I didn't even know what the meat was. Usually you couldn't tell anyway, but it was suddenly as though don't eat any more pork flashed on a screen before me. I hesitated with the platter in midair, then I passed it along to the inmate waiting next to me. He began serving himself. Abruptly, he stopped. I remember him turning, looking surprised at me. I said to him, I don't eat pork. The platter then kept on down the table. It was the funniest thing, the reaction, the way that it spread. In prison, where so little breaks the monotonous routine, the smallest thing causes a commotion of talk. It was being mentioned all over the cell block by night that Satan didn't eat pork. It made me very proud in some odd way. One of the universal images of the Negro in prison and out was that he couldn't do without pork. It made me feel good to see that my not eating it had especially startled the white convicts. Later I would learn when I had read and studied Islam a good deal that unconsciously my first, my first pre-Islamic submission had been manifested. I had experienced for the first time the Muslim teaching. If you take one step toward Allah, Allah will take two steps towards you. Malcolm X's behavior set him apart. Not eating pork marked him as different. It set him free from the constraints of stereotypes and racism. It began to create a new identity and a new future. Now, I don't know basically anything about the Muslim concept of submission, but I do know about faith. And faith is extending yourself. It's acting when you can't see the reason why. And for any of us who are letting our lives be shaped by Jesus, who have hoped, not fully knowing if God would come through for us, who have set aside career advancements to answer divine callings, who have tithed, who have not lied when lying would have benefited us, who have resisted war and violence, all of that creates respect for yourself. It really does. It gives you an identity inside and out. People see your choices and people talk. Practices form a set apart community, a holy community. This is what observing the Sabbath would have been like for Jews. It would have marked them as Jews. It would have set them apart as different. It would have created that positive, solid sense of self that comes from being holy. Malcolm X experienced that, and the Jewish people experienced that. But that positive sense of community, of group identity built on common practice, can have a flip side. 
usually I feel like there isn't too much of a cultural hump between me not having grown up Mennonite and those of us who did grow up as Mennonite. But I really don't know if what I'm going to share is how those of you who were raised Mennonite were raised because I was raised evangelical. And for me, when I was growing up as an evangelical Christian, the clearest social, ethical, public, practical marker of whether you were a Christian or not was if you had sex before marriage. Saving yourself till marriage was the line that delineated the real Christians, the people who truly loved God and followed Jesus, from people who just said they were Christians or who weren't believers at all. Abstinence was the marker of faithfulness. That Christian identity created a lot of self-respect for myself. It created a strong group of girlfriends who are still my best friends till this day and who had strong senses of themselves as high schoolers. We didn't really look to guys for our identity. We knew who we were and what we were about. But at the edges of all of that really good self-respect, so many stories bubble up for me. And I want to give people a chance right now to step away from the sermon here for a moment if you need to, because I'm going to share a few brief stories about sexual purity. And one involves sexual assault. So you can turn off your computer sound if, you're neat, if you need, and I'll put up my finger when I'm done. So many stories bubble up for me. I think about a night washing dishes at a summer camp I worked at, standing side by side with my camp friend when she told me that she had slept with her ex-boyfriend while they were dating. She was so still when she told me. She didn't look at me when she told me. I think about learning a year or two ago that one of my very, very best friends, one of that group of girlfriends with a strong sense of themselves, had been sitting as, as a freshman in math class and a sophomore had put his hand up her skirt. She froze because she didn't know what to do and she didn't tell anybody because she was so ashamed. She didn't tell us her best friends until a couple of years ago and we tell each other everything. I hate him. I think about the story that youth pastors told when I was in high school about a girl who was a strong Christian and all of her friends had had sex and were pressuring her to lose her virginity. And so one day she told them, well, I can always become like you, but you can never become like me. Now looking back, I wonder, was that even a true story? This practice of saving yourself till marriage created a strong group identity as followers of Christ, but it also created a sharp edge. And that sharp edge hurt people. Maintaining group identity isn't a bad thing, but just like the girls on The Bachelor, it can get toxic. 
So now I want to rewind. I want to rewind back into our scripture passage for today. Because today, Jesus is coming up against a sharp edge of a community-defining spiritual practice. The group has defined itself by keeping the Sabbath. But Jesus is sitting on those sharp edges. Jesus is with hungry people, his disciples. And the Sabbath was preventing them from getting food. And Jesus is with someone who is suffering. And the Sabbath was preventing them from being healed. So Jesus asked the gatekeepers of the Sabbath, the group leaders, the rule enforcers, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath, to save a life or to destroy it? Jesus, the giver of the law, the creator of the law is breaking down the ways in which the law has been used to control and not to set free. The God who gave Moses the Sabbath back in Exodus chapter 31 says here in Luke chapter 6 that Sabbath was never meant to have sharp edges. The law was meant to be life and life abundant, bubbling up and bursting over. As Jesus will later say, did I create people for the Sabbath or did I create Sabbath for people? God is here in Jesus Christ and Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah that the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Jesus is fulfilling the law and the prophets, and he is breaking off the sharp edges as he goes. He is taking that firm line between in and out, and he's smudging it in every place where there is hunger and need. Jesus is the very skilled surgeon we need, who cuts all the ties that harm all the communal scar tissue and keeps all of the sinews and ligaments healthy and attached. See, these religious leaders who first ask good questions and then get suspicious and then start making violent plans, they have forgotten the deeper magic of God. They remember the what? but they have forgotten the why. And the why is deeper, more true than the what. The Sabbath was and is a commandment of liberation. It's the commandment to rest. God gave the Jews the Sabbath 
saying that they are to keep it, remembering that they had been enslaved in Egypt. Sabbath is meant to be the opposite of slavery. The Lord God of Israel was and is and always will be the chain breaker. Jesus will break anything that is opposed to feeding us, nourishing us, freeing us, and healing us. Jesus broke the Sabbath, and he will break anything, anything that keeps us from him. We think we have to protect our communities, our way of life, and so our boundaries become to barbed wire. But there is another way, a deeper way. I'm reminded of that great scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The white witch and her minions have shaved Aslan, killed him, and left his body on the stone table. And Lucy comes and she cries. Her hope is gone. But as she cries, mice come and begin to chew the ropes off of Aslan's body. And as the sun rises, Aslan begins to transform. He comes back to life. See, the white witch knew deep magic, but she didn't know there was even deeper magic. It's the magic of life. It's the magic we Christians call with wonder, resurrection. For all of you who have been hurt by the sharp edges of communities, know this. Other people might be willing to sacrifice you. Other Christians might be willing to sacrifice you. But Jesus will never sacrifice you. He will never sacrifice you for the sake of the community. Jesus has come to bring life and life to the fullest. We here at Portland Mennonite Church are a community gathered around that God. The God we have known and seen and loved in Jesus. We are to be a community without sharp edges. A community that knows that our practices, however holy, are meant to be for life and life abundant. So people of God, hear the good news. There is a well for those who are thirsting, for those who are desperate, the broken and poor, where those who drink from the waters beneath them, they shall live always and thirst no more.